Five. When she realized she had lost everything, she initiated a search for the culprit. Anyone would do. Her first husband, manly and unloved, who had failed to heed her whispered warning. Her second husband, unmanly and much loved, who had dragged her away from Prague to a small town and kept her in a state of permanent jealousy by going through one woman after another. But she was powerless against either. The only person who belonged to her and had no means of escape, the hostage who could do penance for all the culprits, was Teresa. Indeed, was she not the principal culprit determining her mother's fate? She, the absurd encounter of the sperm of the most manly of men and the egg of the most beautiful of women? Yes, it was in that fateful second, which was named Teresa, that the botched long-distance race, her mother's life, had begun. Teresa's mother never stopped reminding her that being a mother meant sacrificing everything. Her words had the ring of truth, backed as they were by the experience of a woman who had lost everything because of her child. Teresa would listen and believe that being a mother was the highest value in life, and that being a mother was a great sacrifice. If a mother was sacrifice personified, then a daughter was guilt, with no possibility of redress. 6. Of course, Teresa did not know the story of the night when her mother whispered, Be careful, into the ear of her father. Her guilty conscience was as vague as original sin, but she did what she could to rid herself of it. Her mother took her out of school at the age of fifteen, and Teresa went to work as a waitress, handing over all her earnings. She was willing to do anything to gain her mother's love. She ran the household, took care of her siblings, and spent all day Sunday cleaning house and doing the family wash. It was a pity, because she was the brightest in her class. She yearned for something higher, but in the small town there was nothing higher for her. Whenever she did the clothes, she kept a book next to the tub. As she turned the pages, the wash water dripped all over them. At home there was no such thing as shame. Her mother marched about the flat in her underwear, sometimes braless and sometimes, on summer days, stark naked. Her stepfather did not walk about naked, but he did go into the bathroom every time Teresa was in the bath. Once she locked herself in, and her mother was furious. Who do you think you are, anyway? Do you think he's going to bite off a piece of your beauty? This confrontation shows clearly that hatred for her daughter outweighed suspicion of her husband. Her daughter's guilt was infinite, and included the husband's infidelities. Teresa's desire to be emancipated and insist on her rights, like the right to lock herself in the bathroom, was more objectionable to Teresa's mother than the possibility of her husband's taking a prurient interest in Teresa. Once her mother decided to go naked in the winter when the lights were on, Teresa quickly ran to pull the curtains so that no one could see her from across the street. She heard her mother's laughter behind her. The following day, her mother had some friends over, a neighbor, a woman she worked with, a local schoolmistress, and two or three other women in the habit of getting together regularly. Teresa and the sixteen-year-old son of one of them came in at one point to say hello. 
and her mother immediately took advantage of their presence to tell how Teresa had tried to protect her mother's modesty. She laughed, and all the women laughed with her. Teresa can't reconcile herself to the idea that the human body pisses and farts, she said. Teresa turned bright red, but her mother would not stop. What's so terrible about that? And in answer to her own question, she broke wind loudly. All the women laughed again. 7. Teresa's mother blew her nose noisily, talked to people in public about her sex life, and enjoyed demonstrating her false teeth. She was remarkably skillful at loosening them with her tongue, and in the midst of a broad smile would cause the uppers to drop down over the lowers in such a way to give her face a sinister expression. Her behavior was but a single grand gesture, a casting off of youth and beauty. In the days when she had had nine suitors kneeling around her in a circle, she guarded her nakedness apprehensively, as though trying to express the value of her body in terms of the modesty she accorded it. Now she had not only lost that modesty, she had radically broken with it, ceremoniously using her new immodesty to draw a dividing line through her life and proclaim that youth and beauty were overrated and worthless. Teresa appears to me a continuation of the gesture by which her mother cast off her life as a young beauty, cast it far behind her. And if Teresa has a nervous way of moving, if her gestures lack a certain easy grace, we must not be surprised. Her mother's grand, wild, and self-destructive gesture has left an indelible imprint on her. 8. Teresa's mother demanded justice. She wanted to see the culprit penalized. That is why she insisted her daughter remain with her in the world of immodesty, where youth and beauty mean nothing, where the world is nothing but a vast concentration camp of bodies, one like the next, with souls invisible. Now we can better understand the meaning of Teresa's secret vice, her long looks and frequent glances in the mirror. It was a battle with her mother. It was a longing to be a body unlike other bodies, to find that the surface of her face reflected the crew of the soul charging up from below. It was not an easy task. Her soul, her sad, timid, self-effacing soul, lay concealed in the depths of her bowels and was ashamed to show itself. So it was the day she first met Tomas. Weaving its way through the drunks in the hotel restaurant, her body sagged under the weight of the beers on the tray, and her soul lay somewhere at the level of the stomach, or pancreas. Then Tomas called to her. That call meant a great deal, because it came from someone who neither knew her mother nor the drunks with their daily stereotypically scabrous remarks. His outsider status raised him above the rest. Something else raised him above the others as well. He had an open book on his table. No one had ever opened a book in that restaurant before. In Teresa's eyes, books were the emblems of a secret brotherhood. For she had but a single weapon against the world of crudity surrounding her. The books she took out of the municipal library, and above all, the novels. 
She had read any number of them, from Fielding to Thomas Mann. They not only offered the possibility of an imaginary escape from a life she found unsatisfying, they also had a meaning for her as physical objects. She loved to walk down the street with a book under her arm. It had the same significance for her as an elegant cane for the dandy a century ago. It differentiated her from others. Comparing the book to the elegant cane of the dandy is not absolutely precise. A dandy's cane did more than make him different. It made him modern and up-to-date. The book made Teresa different, but old-fashioned. Of course, she was too young to see how old-fashioned she looked to others. The young men walking by with transistor radios pressed to their ears seemed silly to her. It never occurred to her that they were modern. And so the man who called to her was simultaneously a stranger and a member of the secret brotherhood. He called to her in a kind voice, and Teresa felt her soul rushing up to the surface through her blood vessels and pores to show itself to him. 9. After Tomas had returned to Prague from Zurich, he began to feel uneasy at the thought that his acquaintance with Teresa was the result of six improbable fortuities. But is not an event in fact more significant and noteworthy the greater number of fortuities necessary to bring it about? Chance and chance alone has a message for us. Everything that occurs out of necessity, everything expected, repeated day in and day out, is mute. Only chance can speak to us. We read its message much as gypsies read the images made by coffee grounds at the bottom of a cup. Tomas appeared to Teresa in the hotel restaurant as chance in the absolute. There he sat, poring over an open book, when suddenly he raised his eyes to her, smiled, and said, A cognac, please. At that moment, the radio happened to be playing music. On her way behind the counter to pour the cognac, Teresa turned the volume up. She recognized Beethoven. She had known his music from the time a string quartet from Prague had visited their town. Teresa, who, as we know, yearned for something higher, went to the concert. The hall was nearly empty. The only other people in the audience were the local pharmacist and his wife. And although the quartet of musicians on stage faced only a trio of spectators down below, they were kind enough not to cancel the concert and gave a private performance of the last three Beethoven quartets. Then the pharmacist invited the musicians to dinner and asked the girl in the audience to come along with them. From then on, Beethoven became her image of the world on the other side, the world she yearned for. Rounding the counter with Tomas's cognac, she tried to read Chance's message. How was it possible that at the very moment she was taking an order of cognac to a stranger she found attractive, at that very moment, she heard Beethoven. Necessity knows no magic formulae. They are all left to chance. If a love is to be unforgettable, fortuities must immediately start fluttering down to it like birds to Francis of Assisi's shoulders. 10. He called her back to pay for the cognac, 
He closed his book, The Emblem of the Secret Brotherhood, and she thought of asking him what he was reading. Can you have a charge to my room? he asked. Yes, she said. What number are you in? He showed her his key, which was attached to a piece of wood with a red six drawn on it. That's odd, she said. Six. What's so odd about that? he asked. She had suddenly recalled that the house where they had lived in Prague before her parents were divorced was number six. But she answered something else, which we may credit to her wiles. You're in room six, and my shift ends at six. Well, my train leaves at seven, said the stranger. She did not know how to respond. So she gave him the bill for his signature and took it over to the reception desk. When she finished work, the stranger was no longer at his table. Had he understood her discreet message? She left the restaurant in a state of excitement. Opposite the hotel was a barren little park, as wretched as only the park of a dirty little town can be. But for Teresa, it had always been an island of beauty. It had grass, four poplars, benches, a weeping willow, and a few forsythia bushes. He was sitting on a yellow bench that afforded a clear view of the restaurant entrance. The very same bench she had sat on the day before with a book in her lap. She knew then the birds of fortuity had begun alighting on her shoulders, that this stranger was her fate. He called out to her, invited her to sit next to him. The crew of her soul rushed up to the deck of her body. And then she walked him to the station, and he gave her his card as a farewell gesture. If ever you should happen to come to Prague. 11. Much more than the card he slipped her at the last minute, it was the call of all those fortuities, the book, Beethoven, the number six, the yellow park bench, which gave her the courage to leave home and change her fate. It may well be those few fortuities, quite modest, by the way, even drab, just what one would expect from so lackluster a town, which set her love in motion and provided her with a source of energy she had not yet exhausted at the end of her days. Our day-to-day -day life is bombarded with fortuities, or, to be more precise, with the accidental meetings of people and events we call coincidences. Coincidence means that two events unexpectedly happen at the same time. They meet. Tomas appears in the hotel restaurant at the same time the radio is playing Beethoven. We do not even notice the great majority of such coincidences. If the seat Tomas occupied had been occupied instead by the local butcher, Teresa never would have noticed that the radio was playing Beethoven though the meeting of Beethoven and the butcher would also have been an interesting coincidence. But her nascent love inflamed her sense of beauty, and she would never forget that music. Whenever she heard it, she would be touched. Everything going on around her at that moment would be haloed by the music and take on its beauty. Early in the novel that Teresa clutched under her arm when she went to visit Tomas, Anna meets Vronsky in curious circumstances. 
They are at the railway station when someone is run over by a train. At the end of the novel, Anna throws herself under a train. This symmetrical composition, the same motif appears at the beginning and at the end, may seem quite novelistic to you, and I am willing to agree, but only on condition that you refrain from reading such notions as fictive, fabricated, and untrue to life into the word novelistic, because human lives are composed in precisely such a fashion. They are composed like music. Guided by his sense of beauty, an individual transforms a fortuitous occurrence, Beethoven's music, death under a train, into a motif, which then assumes a permanent place in the composition of the individual's life. Anna could have chosen another way to take her life, but the motif of death and the railway station, unforgettably bound to the birth of love, enticed her in her hour of despair with its dark beauty. Without realizing it, the individual composes his life according to the laws of beauty even in times of greatest distress. It is wrong, then, to chide the novel for being fascinated by mysterious coincidences, like the meeting of Anna, Vronsky, the railway station, and death, or the meeting of Beethoven, Tomas, Teresa, and the cognac. But it is right to chide man for being blind to such coincidences in his daily life, for he thereby deprives his life of a dimension of beauty. 12. Impelled by the birds of fortuity fluttering down on her shoulders, she took a week's leave, and, without a word to her mother, boarded the train to Prague. During the journey, she made frequent trips to the toilet to look in the mirror and beg her soul not to abandon the deck of her body for a moment on this most crucial day of her life. Scrutinizing herself on one such trip, she had a sudden scare. She felt a scratch in her throat. Could she be coming down with something on this most crucial day of her life? But there was no turning back. So she phoned him from the station, and the moment he opened the door, her stomach started rumbling terribly. She was mortified. She felt as though she were carrying her mother in her stomach, and her mother had guffawed to spoil her meeting with Tomas. For the first few seconds she was afraid he would throw her out because of the crude noises she was making. But then he put his arms around her. She was grateful to him for ignoring her rumbles and kissed him passionately, her eyes misting. Before the first minute was up, they were making love. She screamed while making love. She had a fever by then. She had come down with the flu. The nozzle of the hose supplying oxygen to the lungs was stuffed and red. When she traveled to Prague a second time, it was with a heavy suitcase. She had packed all her things, determined never again to return to the small town. He had invited her to come to his place the following evening. That night, she had slept in a cheap hotel. In the morning, she carried her heavy suitcase to the station, left it there, and roamed the streets of Prague the whole day with Anna Karenina under her arm. Not even after she rang the doorbell and he opened the door would she part with it. It was like a ticket into Tomas's world. She realized that she had nothing but that miserable ticket, and the thought brought her nearly to tears. 
To keep from crying, she talked too much and too loudly, and she laughed. And again he took her in his arms almost at once, and they made love. She had entered a mist in which nothing could be seen, and only her scream could be heard. Thirteen. It was no sigh, no moan. It was a real scream. She screamed so hard that Tomas had to turn his head away from her face, afraid that her voice so close to his ear would rupture his eardrum. The scream was not an expression of sensuality. Sensuality is the total mobilization of the senses. An individual observes his partner intently, straining to catch every sound. But her scream aimed at crippling the senses, preventing all seeing and hearing. What was screaming, in fact, was the naive idealism of her love, trying to banish all contradictions, banish the duality of body and soul, banish, perhaps, even time. Were her eyes closed? No. But they were not looking anywhere. She kept them fixed on the void of the ceiling. At times she twisted her head violently from side to side. When the scream died down, she fell asleep at his side, clutching his hand. She held his hand all night. Even at the age of eight, she would fall asleep by pressing one hand into the other and making believe she was holding the hand of a man whom she loved, the man of her life. So if in her sleep she pressed Tomas's hand with such tenacity, we can understand why. She had been training for it since childhood. Fourteen. A young woman forced to keep drunks supplied with beer and siblings with clean underwear, instead of being allowed to pursue something higher, stores up great reserves of vitality, a vitality never dreamed of by university students yawning over their books. Teresa had read a good deal more than they, and learned a good deal more about life, but she would never realize it. The difference between the university graduate and the autodidact lies not so much in the extent of knowledge as in the extent of vitality and self-confidence. The elan with which Teresa flung herself into her new Prague existence was both frenzied and precarious. She seemed to be expecting someone to come up to her any day and say, What are you doing here? Go back where you belong. All her eagerness for life hung by a thread. Tomas's voice. For it was Tomas's voice that had once coaxed forth her timorous soul from its hiding place in her bowels. Teresa had a job in a dark room, but it was not enough for her. She wanted to take pictures, not develop them. Tomas's friend, Sabina, lent her three or four monographs of famous photographers, then invited her to a café and explained over the open books what made each of the pictures interesting. Teresa listened with silent concentration, the kind few professors ever glimpse on their students' faces. Thanks to Sabina, she came to understand the ties between photography and painting, and she made Tomas take her to every exhibit that opened in Prague. Before long, she was placing her own pictures in the Illustrated Weekly where she worked, and finally she left the darkroom for the staff of professional photographers. On the evening of that day, 
she and Tomas went out to a bar with friends to celebrate her promotion. Everyone danced. Tomas began to mope. Back at home, after some prodding from Teresa, he admitted that he had been jealous watching her dance with a colleague of his. You mean you were really jealous? She asked him ten times or more, incredulously, as though someone had just informed her she had been awarded a Nobel Prize. Then she put her arm around his waist and began dancing across the room. The step she used was not the one she had shown off in the bar. It was more like a village polka, a wild romp that sent her legs flying in the air and her torso bouncing all over the room with Tomas in tow. Before long, unfortunately, she began to be jealous herself, and Tomas saw her jealousy not as a Nobel Prize, but as a burden, a burden he would be saddled with until not long before his death. Fifteen. While she marched around the pool naked with a large group of other naked women, Tomas stood over them in a basket hanging from the pool's arched roof, shouting at them, making them sing and do knee-bends. The moment one of them did a faulty knee-bend, he would shoot her. Let me return to this dream. Its horror did not begin with Tomas's first pistol shot. It was horrifying from the outset. Marching naked in formation with a group of naked women was, for Teresa, the quintessential image of horror. When she lived at home, her mother forbade her to lock the bathroom door. What she meant by her injunction was, Your body is just like all other bodies. You have no right to shame. You have no reason to hide something that exists in millions of identical copies. In her mother's world, all bodies were the same, and marched behind one another in formation. Since childhood, Teresa had seen nudity as a sign of concentration camp uniformity, a sign of humiliation. There was yet another horror at the very beginning of the dream. All the women had to sing. Not only were their bodies identical, identically worthless, not only were their bodies mere, resounding, soulless mechanisms, the women rejoiced over it. Theirs was the joyful solidarity of the soulless. The women were pleased at having thrown off the ballast of the soul, that laughable conceit, that illusion of uniqueness, to become one like the next. Teresa sang with them, but did not rejoice. She sang because she was afraid that if she did not sing, the women would kill her. But what was the meaning of the fact that Tomas shot at them, toppling one after another into the pool, dead? The women, overjoyed by their sameness, their lack of diversity, were in fact celebrating their imminent demise, which would render their sameness absolute. So Tomas's shots were merely the joyful climax to their morbid march. After every report of his pistol, they burst into joyous laughter, and as each corpse sank beneath the surface, they sang even louder. But why was Tomas the one doing the shooting? And why was he out to shoot Teresa with the rest of them? Because he was the one who sent Teresa to join them. That was what the dream was meant to tell Tomas, what Teresa was unable to tell him herself. She had come to him to escape her mother's world 
a world where all bodies were equal. She had come to him to make her body unique, irreplaceable. But he too had drawn an equal sign between her and the rest of them. He kissed them all alike, stroked them alike, made no, absolutely no distinction between Therese's body and the other bodies. He had sent her back into the world she tried to escape, sent her to march naked with the other naked women. 16. She would dream three series of dreams in succession. The first was of cats going berserk and referred to the suffering she had gone through in her lifetime. The second was images of her execution and came in countless variations. The third was of her life after death, when humiliation turned into a never-ending state. The dreams left nothing to be deciphered. The accusation they leveled at Tomas was so clear that his only reaction was to hang his head and stroke her hand without a word. The dreams were eloquent, but they were also beautiful. That aspect seems to have escaped Freud in his theory of dreams. Dreaming is not merely an act of communication, or coded communication, if you like. It is also an aesthetic activity, a game of the imagination, a game that is a value in itself. Our dreams prove that to imagine, to dream about things that have not happened, is among mankind's deepest needs. Herein lies the danger. If dreams were not beautiful, they would quickly be forgotten. But Teresa kept coming back to her dreams, running through them in her mind, turning them into legends. Tomas lived under the hypnotic spell cast by the excruciating beauty of Teresa's dreams. Dear Teresa, sweet Teresa, what am I losing you to? he once said to her as they sat face to face in a wine cellar. Every night you dream of death, as if you really wished to quit this world. It was day. Reason and willpower were back in place. A drop of red wine ran slowly down her glass as she answered. There's nothing I can do about it, Tomas. Oh, I understand. I know you love me. I know your infidelities are no great tragedy. She looked at him with love in her eyes. But she feared the night ahead. Feared her dreams. Her life was split. Both day and night were competing for her. 17. Anyone whose goal is something higher must expect someday to suffer vertigo. What is vertigo? Fear of falling? Then why do we feel it when the observation tower comes equipped with a sturdy handrail? No. Vertigo is something other than the fear of falling. It is the voice of the emptiness below us which tempts and lures us. It is the desire to fall against which, terrified, we defend ourselves. The naked women marching around the swimming pool, the corpses in the hearse, rejoicing that she, too, was dead. These were the down below she had feared and fled once before, but which mysteriously beckoned her. These were her vertigo. She heard a sweet, almost joyous summons to renounce her fate and soul. The solidarity of the soulless calling her. 
and in times of weakness she was ready to heed the call and return to her mother. She was ready to dismiss the crew of her soul from the deck of her body, ready to descend to a place among her mother's friends and laugh when one of them broke wind noisily, ready to march around the pool naked with them and sing. 18. True, Teresa fought with her mother until the day she left home, but let us not forget that she never stopped loving her. She would have done anything for her if her mother had asked in a loving voice. The only reason she found the strength to leave was that she never heard that voice. When Teresa's mother realized that her aggressiveness no longer had any power over her daughter, she started writing her querulous letters, complaining about her husband, her boss, her health, her children, and assuring Teresa she was the only person left in her life. Teresa thought that at last, after twenty years, she was hearing the voice of her mother's love, and felt like going back. All the more because she felt so weak, so debilitated by Tomas's infidelities. They exposed her powerlessness, which in turn led to vertigo, the insuperable longing to fall. One day her mother phoned to say she had cancer, and only a few months to live. The news transformed into rebellion Teresa's despair at Tomasa's infidelities. She had betrayed her mother, she told herself reproachfully, and for a man who did not love her. She was willing to forget everything her mother had done to torture her. She was in a position to understand her now. They were in the same situation. Her mother loved her stepfather, just as Teresa loved Tomas. And her stepfather tortured her mother with his infidelities, just as Tomas galled her with his. The cause of her mother's malice was that she had suffered so. Teresa told Tomas that her mother was ill, and that she would be taking a week off to go and see her. Her voice was full of spite. Sensing that the real reason calling her back to her mother was vertigo, Tomas opposed the trip. He rang up the hospital in the small town. Meticulous records of the incidents of cancer were kept throughout the country, so he had no trouble finding out that Teresa's mother had never been suspected of having the disease, nor had she even seen a doctor for over a year. Teresa obeyed Tomas and did not go to visit her mother. Several hours after the decision, she fell in the street and injured her knee. She began to teeter as she walked, fell almost daily, bumped into things, or, at the very least, dropped objects. She was in the grip of an insuperable longing to fall. She lived in a constant state of vertigo. Pick me up is the message of a person who keeps falling. Tomas kept picking her up, patiently. 19. I want to make love to you in my studio. It will be like a stage, surrounded by people. The audience won't be allowed up close, but they won't be able to take their eyes off us. As time passed, the image lost some of its original cruelty, and began to excite Teresa. She would whisper the details to him while they made love. Then it occurred to her that there might be a way to avoid the condemnation she saw in Tomas's infidelities. All he had to do was take her along, take her with him when he went to see his mistresses, 
Maybe then her body would again become the first and only among all others. Her body would become his second, his assistant, his alter ego. I'll undress them for you. Give them a bath. Bring them into you, she would whisper to him as they pressed together. She yearned for the two of them to merge into a hermaphrodite. Then the other women's bodies would be their playthings. Twenty. Oh, to be the alter ego of his polygamous life. Tomas refused to understand, but she could not get it out of her head and tried to cultivate her friendship with Sabina. Teresa began by offering to do a series of photographs of Sabina. Sabina invited Teresa to her studio, and at last she saw the spacious room and its centerpiece, the large, square, platform-like bed. I feel awful that you've never been here before, said Sabina, as she showed her the pictures leaning against the wall. She even pulled out an old canvas of a steelworks under construction, which she had done during her school days, a period when the strictest realism had been required of all students. Art that was not realistic was said to sap the foundations of socialism. In the spirit of the wager of the times, she had tried to be stricter than her teachers, and had painted in a style concealing the brushstrokes and closely resembling color photography. Here is a painting I happened to drip red paint on. At first I was terribly upset, but then I started enjoying it. The trickle looked like a crack. It turned the building site into a battered old backdrop, a backdrop with a building site painted on it. I began playing with the crack, filling it out, wondering what might be visible behind it. And that's how I began my first cycle of paintings. I called it Behind the Scenes. Of course, I couldn't show them to anybody. I'd have been kicked out of the academy. On the surface, there was always an impeccably realistic world. But underneath, behind the backdrop's cracked canvas, lurked something different, something mysterious or abstract. After pausing for a moment, she added, On the surface, an intelligible lie. Underneath, the unintelligible truth. Teresa listened to her with a remarkable concentration that few professors ever see on the face of a student, and began to perceive that all Sabina's paintings, past and present, did indeed treat the same idea, that they all featured the confluence of two themes, two worlds, that they were all double exposures, so to speak. A landscape showing an old-fashioned table lamp shining through it, an idyllic still life of apples, nuts, and a tiny candlelit Christmas tree showing a hand ripping through the canvas. She felt a rush of admiration for Sabina, and because Sabina treated her as a friend, it was an admiration free of fear and suspicion, and quickly turning into friendship. She nearly forgot she had come to take photographs. Sabina had to remind her. Teresa finally looked away from the paintings, only to see the bed in the middle of the room like a platform. 21. Next to the bed stood a small table, and on the table the model of a human head, the kind hairdressers put wigs on. Sabina's wig stand sported a bowler hat rather than a wig. It used to belong to my grandfather, she said with a smile. It was the kind of hat 
black, hard, round, that Teresa had seen only on the screen, the kind of hat Chaplin wore. She smiled back, picked it up, and after studying it for a time said, Would you like me to take your picture in it? Sabina laughed for a long time at the idea. Teresa put down the bowler hat, picked up her camera, and started taking pictures. When she had been at it for almost an hour, she suddenly said, What would you say to some nude shots? Nude shots, Sabina laughed. Yes, said Teresa, repeating her proposal more boldly. Nude shots. That calls for a drink, said Sabina, and opened a bottle of wine. Teresa felt her body going weak. She was suddenly tongue-tied. Sabina, meanwhile, strode back and forth, wine in hand, going on about her grandfather, who'd been the mayor of a small town. Sabina had never known him. All he'd left behind was this bowler hat and a picture showing a raised platform with several small-town dignitaries on it. One of them was Grandfather. It wasn't at all clear what they were doing up there on the platform. Maybe they were officiating at some ceremony, unveiling a monument to a fellow dignitary who had also once worn a bowler hat at public ceremonies. Sabina went on and on about the bowler hat and her grandfather until, emptying her third glass, she said, I'll be right back, and disappeared into the bathroom. She came out in her bathrobe. Teresa picked up her camera and put it to her eye. Sabina threw open the robe. 22. The camera served Teresa as both a mechanical eye through which to observe Tomas's mistress and a veil by which to conceal her face from her. It took Sabina some time before she could bring herself to slip out of the robe entirely. The situation she found herself in was proving a bit more difficult than she had expected. After several minutes of posing, she went up to Teresa and said, Now it's my turn to take your picture. Strip. Sabina had heard the command, Strip, so many times from Tomas, that it was engraved in her memory. Thus, Tomas's mistress had just given Tomas's command to Tomas's wife. The two women were joined by the same magic word. That was Tomas's way of unexpectedly turning an innocent conversation with a woman into an erotic situation. Instead of stroking, flattering, pleading, he would issue a command, issue it abruptly, unexpectedly, softly yet firmly and authoritatively, and at a distance. At such moments he never touched the woman he was addressing. He often used it on Teresa as well, and even though he said it softly, even though he whispered it, it was a command, and obeying never failed to arouse her. Hearing the word now made her desire to obey even stronger, because doing a stranger's bidding is a special madness, a madness all the more heady in this case because the command came not from a man, but from a woman. Sabina took the camera from her, and Teresa took off her clothes. There she stood before Sabina, naked and disarmed, literally disarmed, deprived of the apparatus she had been using to cover her face and aim at Sabina like a weapon. She was completely at the mercy of Tomas's mistress. This beautiful submission intoxicated Teresa. She wished that the moments she stood naked opposite Sabina would never end. I think that Sabina, too, felt the strange enchantment of the situation. 
her lover's wife standing oddly compliant and timorous before her. But after clicking the shutter two or three times, almost frightened by the enchantment and eager to dispel it, she burst into loud laughter. Teresa followed suit, and the two of them got dressed. 23. All previous crimes of the Russian Empire had been committed under the cover of a discreet shadow. The deportation of a million Lithuanians, the murder of hundreds of thousands of Poles, the liquidation of the Crimean Tatars remain in our memory, but no photographic documentation exists. Sooner or later they will therefore be proclaimed as fabrications. Not so the 1968 invasion of Czechoslovakia, of which both stills and motion pictures are stored in archives throughout the world. Czech photographers and cameramen were acutely aware that they were the ones who could best do the only thing left to do, preserve the face of violence for the distant future. Seven days in a row, Teresa roamed the streets, photographing Russian soldiers and officers in compromising situations. The Russians did not know what to do. They had been carefully briefed about how to behave if someone fired at them or threw stones, but they had received no directives about what to do when someone aimed a lens. She shot roll after roll and gave about half of them undeveloped to foreign journalists. The borders were still open and reporters passing through were grateful for any kind of document. Many of her photographs turned up in the Western press. They were pictures of tanks, of threatening fists, of houses destroyed, of corpses covered with blood-stained red, white, and blue Czech flags, of young men on motorcycles racing full speed around the tanks and waving Czech flags on long staffs, of young girls in unbelievably short skirts provoking the miserably sexually famished Russian soldiers by kissing random passers-by before their eyes. As I have said, the Russian invasion was not only a tragedy. It was a carnival of hate, filled with a curious and no longer explicable euphoria. 24. She took some fifty prints with her to Switzerland, prints she had made herself with all the care and skill she could muster. She offered them to a high-circulation illustrated magazine. The editor gave her a kind reception. All Czechs still wore the halo of their misfortune, and the good Swiss were touched. He offered her seat, looked through the prints, praised them, and explained that because a certain time had elapsed since the events, they hadn't the slightest chance, not that they aren't very beautiful, of being published. But it's not over yet in Prague, she protested, and tried to explain to him in her bad German that at this very moment, even with the country occupied, with everything against them, workers' councils were forming in the factories, the students were going out on strike demanding the departure of the Russians, and the whole country was saying aloud what it thought. That's what's so unbelievable, and nobody here cares anymore. The editor was glad when an energetic woman came into the office and interrupted the conversation. The woman handed him a folder and said, Here's the nudist beach article. The editor was delicate enough to fear that a Czech who photographed tanks would find pictures of naked people on a beach frivolous. He laid the folder at the far end of the desk and quickly said to the woman, How would you like to meet a Czech colleague of yours? She's brought me some marvelous pictures. 
The woman shook Therese's hand and picked up her photographs. Have a look at mine in the meantime, she said. Teresa leaned over to the folder and took out the pictures. Almost apologetically, the editor said to Teresa, Of course, they're completely different from your pictures. Not at all, said Teresa. They're the same. Neither the editor nor the photographer understood her, and even I find it difficult to explain what she had in mind when she compared a nude beach to the Russian invasion. Looking through the pictures, she stopped for a time at one that showed a family of four standing in a circle, a naked mother leaning over her children, her giant tits hanging low like a goat's or cow's, and the husband leaning the same way on the other side, his penis and scrotum looking very much like an udder in miniature. "'You don't like them, do you?' asked the editor. "'They're good photographs.' "'She's shocked by the subject matter,' said the woman. I can tell just by looking at you that you've never set foot on a nude beach. No, said Teresa. The editor smiled. You see how easy it is to guess where you're from? The communist countries are awfully puritanical. There's nothing wrong with the naked body, the woman said with maternal affection. It's normal, and everything normal is beautiful. The image of her mother marching through the flat, naked, flashed through Teresa's mind. She could still hear the laughter behind her back when she ran and pulled the curtains to stop the neighbors from seeing her naked mother. 25. The woman photographer invited Teresa to the magazine's cafeteria for a cup of coffee. Those pictures of yours, they're very interesting. I couldn't help noticing what a terrific sense of the female body you have. You know what I mean. The girls with the provocative poses... The ones kissing passers-by in front of the Russian tanks? Yes. You'd be a top-notch fashion photographer, you know. You'd have to get yourself a model first, someone like you who's looking for a break. Then you could make a portfolio of photographs and show them to the agencies. It would take some time before you made a name for yourself. Naturally, but I can do one thing for you here and now. Introduce you to the editor-in-charge of our garden section. He might need some shots of cactuses and roses and things. Thank you very much, Teresa said sincerely, because it was clear that the woman sitting opposite her was full of goodwill. But then she said to herself, Why take pictures of cactuses? She had no desire to go through in Zurich what she'd been through in Prague, battles over job and career, over every picture published. She had never been ambitious out of vanity. All she had ever wanted was to escape from her mother's world. Yes, she saw it with absolute clarity. No matter how enthusiastic she was about taking pictures, she could just as easily have turned her enthusiasm to any other endeavor. Photography was nothing but a way of getting at something higher and living beside Tomas. She said, My husband is a doctor. He can support me. I don't need to take pictures. The woman photographer replied, I don't see how you can give it up after the beautiful work you've done. Yes, the pictures of the invasion were something else again. She had not done them for Tomas. She had done them out of passion, but not passion for photography. She had done them out of passionate hatred. The situation would never recur. 
and these photographs, which she made out of passion, were the ones nobody wanted because they were out of date. Only cactuses had perennial appeal, and cactuses were of no interest to her. She said, You're too kind, really, but I'd rather stay at home. I don't need a job. The woman said, But will you be fulfilled sitting at home? Teresa said, More fulfilled than by taking pictures of cactuses. The woman said, Even if you take pictures of cactuses, you're leading your life. If you live only for your husband, you have no life of your own. All of a sudden, Teresa felt annoyed. My husband is my life, not cactuses. The woman photographer responded in kind. You mean you think of yourself as happy? Teresa, still annoyed, said, Of course I'm happy. The woman said, The only kind of woman who can say that is very... She stopped short. Teresa finished it for her. Limited? That's what you mean, isn't it? The woman regained control of herself and said, Not limited. Anachronistic. You're right, said Teresa, wistfully. That's just what my husband says about me. 26. But Tomas spent days on end at the hospital, and she was at home alone. At least she had Karenin and could take him on long walks. Home again she would pore over her German and French grammars. But she felt sad and had trouble concentrating. She kept coming back to the speech Dubček had given over the radio after his return from Moscow. Although she had completely forgotten what he said, she could still hear his quavering voice. She thought about how foreign soldiers had arrested him. The head of an independent state in his own country held him for four days somewhere in the Ukrainian mountains, informed him he was to be executed, as, a decade before, they had executed his Hungarian counterpart, Imre Naj, then packed him off to Moscow, ordered him to have a bath and shave, to change his clothes and put on a tie, apprised him of the decision to commute his execution, instructed him to consider himself head of state once more, sat him at a table opposite Brezhnev, and forced him to act. He returned, humiliated, to address his humiliated nation. He was so humiliated, he could not even speak. Teresa would never forget those awful pauses in the middle of his sentences. Was he that exhausted? Ill? Had they drugged him? Or was it only despair? If nothing was to remain of Dubček, then at least those awful long pauses when he seemed unable to breathe, when he gasped for air before a whole nation glued to its radios, at least those pauses would remain. Those pauses contained all the horror that had befallen their country. It was the seventh day of the invasion. She heard the speech in the editorial offices of a newspaper that had been transformed overnight into an organ of the resistance. Everyone present hated Dubček at that moment. They reproached him for compromising. They felt humiliated by his humiliation. His weakness offended them. Thinking in Zurich of those days... She no longer felt any aversion to the man. The word weak no longer sounded like a verdict. Any man confronted with superior strength is weak, 
even if he has an athletic body like Dubček's. The very weakness that at the time had seemed unbearable and repulsive, the weakness that had driven Teresa and Tomas from the country, suddenly attracted her. She realized that she belonged among the weak, in the camp of the weak, in the country of the weak, and that she had to be faithful to them precisely because they were weak and gasped for breath in the middle of sentences. She felt attracted by their weakness as by vertigo. She felt attracted by it because she felt weak herself. Again she began to feel jealous, and again her hands shook. When Tomas noticed it, he did what he usually did. He took her hands in his and tried to calm them by pressing hard. She tore them away from him. "'What's the matter?' he asked. "'Nothing. What do you want me to do for you? I want you to be old, ten years older, twenty years older.' What she meant was, "'I want you to be weak, as weak as I am.' 27. Karenin was not overjoyed by the move to Switzerland. Karenin hated change. Dog time cannot be plotted along a straight line. It does not move on and on from one thing to the next. It moves in a circle, like the hands of a clock, which, they too unwilling to dash madly ahead, turn round and round the face, day in and day out, following the same path. In Prague, when Tomas and Teresa bought a new chair or moved a flower-pot, Karenin would look on in displeasure. It disturbed his sense of time. It was as though they were trying to dupe the hands of the clock by changing the numbers on its face. Nonetheless, he soon managed to re-establish the old order and old rituals in the Zurich flat. As in Prague, he would jump up on their bed and welcome them to the day accompany Teresa on her morning shopping jaunt, and make certain he got the other walks coming to him as well. He was the timepiece of their lives. In periods of despair, she would remind herself she had to hold on because of him, because he was weaker than she, weaker perhaps even than Dubček and their abandoned homeland. One day, when they came back from a walk, the phone was ringing. She picked up the receiver and asked who it was. It was a woman's voice speaking German and asking for Tomas. It was an impatient voice, and Teresa felt there was a hint of derision in it. When she said that Tomas wasn't there and she didn't know when he'd be back, the woman on the other end of the line started laughing and, without saying goodbye, hung up. Teresa knew it did not mean a thing. It could have been a nurse from the hospital, a patient, a secretary anyone. But still she was upset and unable to concentrate on anything. It was then that she realized she had lost the last bit of strength she had had at home. She was absolutely incapable of tolerating this absolutely insignificant incident. Being in a foreign country means walking a tightrope high above the ground without the net afforded a person by the country where he has his family, colleagues, and friends and where he can easily say what he has to say in a language he has known from childhood. In Prague, she was dependent on Tomas only when it came to the heart. Here she was dependent on him for everything. What would happen to her here 
if he abandoned her, would she have to live her whole life in fear of losing him? She told herself their acquaintance had been based on an error from the start. The copy of Anna Karenina under her arm amounted to false papers. It had given Tomas the wrong idea. In spite of their love, they had made each other's life a hell. The fact that they loved each other was merely proof that the fault lay not in themselves, in their behavior or inconstancy of feeling, but rather in their incompatibility. He was strong and she was weak. She was like Dubček, who made a thirty-second pause in the middle of a sentence. She was like her country, which stuttered, gasped for breath, could not speak. But when the strong were too weak to hurt the weak, the weak had to be strong enough to leave. And having told herself all this, she pressed her face against Karenin's furry head and said, Sorry, Karenin, it looks as though you're going to have to move again. 28. Sitting crushed into a corner of the train compartment, with her heavy suitcase above her head, and Karenin squeezed against her legs, she kept thinking about the cook at the hotel restaurant where she had worked when she lived with her mother. The cook would take every opportunity to give her a slap on the behind, and never tired of asking her in front of everyone when she would give in and go to bed with him. It was odd that he was the one who came to mind. He had always been the prime example of everything she loathed, and now all she could think of was looking him up and telling him, You used to say you wanted to sleep with me? Well, here I am. She longed to do something that would prevent her from turning back to Tomas. She longed to destroy, brutally, the past seven years of her life. It was vertigo, a heady, insuperable longing to fall. We might also call vertigo the intoxication of the weak. Aware of his weakness, a man decides to give in rather than stand up to it. He is drunk with weakness, wishes to grow even weaker, wishes to fall down in the middle of the main square in front of everybody, wishes to be down, lower than down. She tried to talk herself into settling outside of Prague and giving up her profession as a photographer. She would go back to the small town from which Tomas's voice had once lured her. But once in Prague she found she had to spend some time taking care of various practical matters, and began putting off her departure. On the fifth day, Tomas suddenly turned up. Karenin jumped all over him, so it was a while before they had to make any overtures to each other. They felt they were standing on a snow-covered plain, shivering with cold. Then they moved together, like lovers who had never kissed before. "'Has everything been all right?' he asked. "'Yes,' she answered. "'Have you been to the magazine?' "'I've given them a call.' "'Well?' "'Nothing yet. I've been waiting.' "'For what?' She made no response. She could not tell him that she had been waiting for him. 29. Now we return to a moment we already know about. Tomas was desperately unhappy and had a bad stomachache. He did not fall asleep until very late at night. Soon thereafter, Teresa awoke. 
There were Russian airplanes circling over Prague, and it was impossible to sleep for the noise. Her first thought was that he had come back because of her. Because of her, he had changed his destiny. Now he would no longer be responsible for her. Now she was responsible for him. The responsibility, she felt, seemed to require more strength than she could muster. But all at once she recalled that just before he had appeared at the door of their flat the day before, the church bells had chimed six o'clock. On the day they first met, her shift had ended at six. She saw him sitting there in front of her on the yellow bench and heard the bells in the belfry chime six. No, it was not superstition. It was a sense of beauty that cured her of her depression and imbued her with a new will to live. The birds of fortuity had alighted once more on her shoulders. There were tears in her eyes, and she was unutterably happy to hear him breathing at her side. Part 3 Words Misunderstood 1. Geneva is a city of fountains large and small, of parks where music once rang out from the bandstands. Even the university is hidden among trees. Franz had just finished his afternoon lecture. As he left the building, the sprinklers were spouting jets of water over the lawn, and he was in a capital mood. He was on his way to see his mistress. She lived only a few streets away. He often stopped in for a visit, but only as a friend, never as a lover. If he made love to her in her Geneva studio, he would be going from one woman to the other, from wife to mistress and back in a single day. And because in Geneva husband and wife sleep together in the French style, in the same bed, he would be going from the bed of one woman to the bed of another in the space of several hours. And that, he felt, would humiliate both mistress and wife and, in the end, himself as well. The love he bore this woman, with whom he had fallen in love several months before, was so precious to him that he tried to create an independent space for her in his life, a restricted zone of purity. He was often invited to lecture at foreign universities, and now he accepted all offers. But because they were not enough to satisfy his newfound wanderlust, he took to inventing congresses and symposia as a means of justifying the new absences to his wife. His mistress, who had a flexible schedule, accompanied him on all speaking engagements, real and imagined. So it was that within a short span of time he introduced her to many European cities and an American one. "'How would you like to go to Palermo ten days from now?' asked Franz. "'I prefer Geneva,' she answered. She was standing in front of her easel, examining a work in progress. "'How can you live without seeing Palermo?' asked Franz, in an attempt at levity. "'I have seen Palermo,' she said. "'You have?' he said with a hint of jealousy. A friend of mine once sent me a postcard from there. It's taped up over the toilet. Haven't you noticed? Then she told him a story. Once upon a time, in the early part of the century, there lived a poet. He was so old, he had to be taken on walks by his amanuensis. Master, 
his amanuensis said one day. Look what's up in the sky. It's the first airplane ever to fly over the city. I have my own picture of it, said the poet to his amanuensis, without raising his eyes from the ground. Well, I have my own picture of Palermo. It has the same hotels and cars as all cities, and my studio always has new and different pictures. Franz was sad. He had grown so accustomed to linking their love life to foreign travel that his Let's go to Palermo was an unambiguous erotic message, and her I prefer Geneva could have only one meaning. His mistress no longer desired him. How could he be so unsure of himself with her? She had not given him the slightest cause for worry. In fact, she was the one who had taken the erotic initiative shortly after they met. He was a good-looking man. He was at the peak of his scholarly career. He was even feared by his colleagues for the arrogance and tenacity he displayed during professional meetings and colloquia. Then why did he worry daily that his mistress was about to leave him? The only explanation I can suggest is that for Franz, love was not an extension of public life, but its antithesis. It meant a longing to put himself at the mercy of his partner. He who gives himself up like a prisoner of war must give up his weapons as well. And deprived in advance of defense against a possible blow, he cannot help wondering when the blow will fall. That is why I can say that for Franz, love meant the constant expectation of a blow. While Franz attended to his anguish, his mistress put down her brush and went into the next room. She returned with a bottle of wine. She opened it without a word and poured out two glasses. Immediately, he felt relieved and slightly ridiculous. The I prefer Geneva did not mean she refused to make love. Quite the contrary, it meant she was tired of limiting their lovemaking to foreign cities. She raised her glass and emptied it in one swig. Franz did the same. He was naturally overjoyed that her refusal to go to Palermo was actually a call to love. But he was a bit sorry as well. His mistress seemed determined to violate the zone of purity he had introduced into their relationship. She had failed to understand his apprehensive attempts to save their love from banality and separate it radically from his conjugal home. The ban on making love with his painter-mistress in Geneva was actually a self-inflicted punishment for having married another woman. He felt it as a kind of guilt or defect. Even though his conjugal sex life was hardly worth mentioning, he and his wife still slept in the same bed, awoke in the middle of the night to each other's heavy breathing, and inhaled the smells of each other's body. True, he would rather have slept by himself, but the marriage bed is still the symbol of the marriage bond, and symbols, as we know, are inviolable. Each time he lay down next to his wife in that bed, he thought of his mistress, imagining him lying down next to his wife in that bed, and each time he thought of her he felt ashamed. That was why he wished to separate the bed he slept in with his wife, as far as possible in space, from the bed he made love in with his mistress. His painter-mistress poured herself another glass of wine, drank it down, 
and then, still silent and with a curious nonchalance, as if completely unaware of Franz's presence, slowly removed her blouse. She was behaving like an acting student, whose improvisation assignment is to make the class believe she is alone in a room and no one can see her. Standing there, in her skirt and bra, she suddenly, as if recalling only then that she was not alone in the room, fixed Franz with a long stare. That stare bewildered him. He could not understand it. All lovers unconsciously establish their own rules of the game, which from the outset admit no transgression. The stare she had just fixed on him fell outside their rules. It had nothing in common with the looks and gestures that usually preceded their lovemaking. It was neither provocative nor flirtatious, simply interrogative. The problem was, Franz had not the slightest notion of what it was asking. Next, she stepped out of her skirt, and taking Franz by the hand, turned him in the direction of a large mirror propped against the wall. Without letting go of his hand, she looked into the mirror with the same long, questioning stare, training it first on herself, then on him. Near the mirror stood a wigstand with an old black bowler hat on it. She bent over, picked up the hat, and put it on her head. The image in the mirror was instantaneously transformed. Suddenly, it was a woman in her undergarments, a beautiful, distant, indifferent woman with a terribly out-of-place bowler hat on her head, holding the hand of a man in a gray suit and a tie. Again, he had to smile at how poorly he understood his mistress. When she took her clothes off, it wasn't so much erotic provocation as an odd little caper, a happening adieu. His smile beamed understanding and consent. He waited for his mistress to respond in kind, but she did not. Without letting go of his hand, she stood staring into the mirror, first at herself, then at him. The time for the happening had come and gone. Franz was beginning to feel that the caper, which, in and of itself he was happy to think of as charming, had dragged on too long. So he gently took the brim of the bowler hat between two fingers, lifted it off Sabina's head with a smile, and laid it back on the wig stand. It was as though he were erasing the mustache a naughty child had drawn on a picture of the Virgin Mary. For several more seconds she remained motionless, staring at herself in the mirror. Then Franz covered her with tender kisses and asked her once more to go with him in ten days to Palermo. This time she said yes, unquestioningly, and he left. He was in an excellent mood again. Geneva, which he had cursed all his life as the metropolis of boredom, now seemed beautiful and full of adventure. Outside in the street, he looked back up at the studio's broad window. It was late spring and hot. All the windows were shaded with striped awnings. Franz walked to the park. At its far end, the golden cupolas of the Orthodox Church rose up like two gilded cannonballs, kept from imminent collapse and suspended in the air by some invisible power. Everything was beautiful. Then he went down to the embankment and took the public transport boat to the north bank of the lake where he lived. <laughs>